Can you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to John chapter 19? As I'm sure you can tell from the songs we've sung already this morning, lately we've been giving attention to the cross of Christ and to the implications that extend from the cross into our lives today. Last week we began to consider some of what Jesus said from the cross. He didn't say much, just seven brief statements, but they are as applicable today as they were then. And uh, you've heard me say, and I'll say it at least a couple more times, in the coming weeks, last words are lasting words. For six hours, Jesus hung on that tree. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Three of the seven sayings took place during the first three hours, from 9 to noon. During this time, He prayed for those uh, responsible for His death. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He He answered the prayer of the dying thief next to him. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And he saw to the care of his mother, as we considered last week, uh, tasking the Apostle John with this important responsibility. And at at noon, we know from the Gospels, at noon darkness enveloped the land. And it signified the transfer or the imputation of our sins upon Christ, the sinless sin bearer. And it was during this time when Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first and only time ever there was distance and separation within the Godhead as the Eternal Father turned away from the Eternal Son to leave Jesus to suffer sin's penalty alone. He had to. That was the only way that perfect love could meet perfect justice to perfectly accomplish God's redemptive purposes. So the first three sayings from the cross were spread out over the first three hours. Then came a three-hour block of darkness. And then came the last four sayings in rapid succession within the same final minute. Within the span of just 60 seconds, Jesus would acknowledge His forsakenness, express His thirst, declare His victory, and commit His Spirit to God. And it's the second of these final four and the fifth saying overall that lies before us today in John 19, when Jesus said succinctly, I thirst. And because Jesus thirsted on the cross, our many thirsts can be satiated and satisfied in Him. And so I want to consider with you this morning Christ's thirst and ours. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, 
knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Our good and great and heavenly Father, thank you again for these moments we share. What a gift that you have brought us together at this time in this place. And there is not a single one of us who comes into this place this morning who does not thirst for many things. Our needs and our wants are many. We have need, we have uh, physical and material needs and wants. We have emotional needs and wants. We have relational needs and wants. We have spiritual needs and wants. And so there's not a single person here this morning who is not in need or want in some degree. We acknowledge and we admit that we have tried so desperately to meet our needs and fill our wants in far lesser things. Even this week, even this week, we have tried so hard to fill our needs and and our wants in things that cannot satisfy. We just confess this to you, even now. We confess confess our pursuit of lesser things and we receive from you grace and forgiveness and cleansing God thank you for your love thank you for your mercy thank you for your faithfulness thank you for your work in our lives that you're continuing to refine us and purify us and wean us from lesser things. Thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. Thank you that his work, even this work from the cross, it extends and reaches throughout all history. His voice, this, these words from the cross, they echo from generation to generation. And so this morning as we come before your word and we see and we hear Jesus again, will you, O Holy Spirit, will you enable us to understand your word? Will you enable us to receive it gladly? Will you help us to live lives that, 
that uh, abide by its truth. And will you, even this morning, in your great kindness, will you satisfy our thirst today? For the glory of your name and for the great good of your people, we pray. Amen. If you had, if you knew, if you knew you had just 60 seconds left to live, what would you say? What would be among your last words? What lasting thought would you want to voice? Six hours have nearly passed. It's now 2.59 p.m. And Jesus has roughly one minute left before his death. Three of his, three of his final words seem so appropriate given the circumstances, so profound. He's just expressed his forsakenness, which we considered earlier. He will soon declare his victory, and then he'll commit his spirit to God. And these fit the situation so well. But, but the word before us this morning, I thirst, it appears at first glance somewhat out of place, so simple, so ordinary. We might have expected something more, something deep and spiritual. And yet, as ordinary as it seems, this statement is more. And it's incredibly rich with meaning. And I want to notice, I want, I want us to notice first that John includes two key details uh, concerning this statement, saying first that Jesus knew that all was now finished. Jesus knew that all was now finished. And we'll consider this thought more closely next time. But for our purposes today, we must remember that Jesus had a task to complete. A divine and enormous task that only He could complete. From before the foundations of the world, He alone was to bear the sins of the world. From the very first sin in Eden, He was to redeem fallen sinners by crushing the serpent's head. And from that very first prophecy, He was to serve as our substitute and our victor. And from the moment of His birth and throughout His life, He was to save sinners back to God by suffering in our place and by defeating Satan Himself. And now, in the moment of His death, He knew that all was now finished. The price of our redemption had been paid in full. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And the second key detail noted by John is the fulfillment of Scripture in the thirst of Christ. And again, I want to consider this more in coming weeks, how the life and death of Jesus Christ was prophetic and perfectly fulfilled God's promises. Now personally, I don't think, as some do, 
I don't think that Jesus spoke of his thirst only to fulfill Scripture. I think he said these words because he was, in fact, thirsty. But in saying them, he fulfilled Scripture. A statement here in in verse 28 refers directly to Psalm 69, verse 21, in which David said of Christ prophetically, They gave me poison for food and for my thirst sour wine to drink. So John notes the knowledge of Jesus that all was now finished, as well as the fulfillment of Scripture and the thirst of Christ. But, but for what was Jesus thirsting exactly? Was it bodily thirst only? Or thirst of another kind as well? Now undoubtedly he was thirsty in the body. He likely hadn't drink, drank anything since dinner the previous night, which by this time was nearly a full 24 hours prior. And so much had happened since then, from his betrayal and arrest to his appearance before Caiaphas, the high priest, and then Pilate, the Roman prefect, already beaten more than once, flogged, then crucified. He had suffered significant blood loss and was severely dehydrated and considering that he was crucified in broad daylight under the beating sun for at least the first three hours. It's no wonder he was thirsty. He was, in a, he was in a desperate state as the fluids in his entire body were drying up and the only relief was a sponge of sour wine. Have you ever been desperately thirsty? I've been thirsty, at times even really thirsty, but never like this. And never when the only hope of relief was in something spoiled and sour. Uh, I've made hospital visits where the person I'm visiting is not allowed to drink anything for medical reasons. They're receiving fluids intravenously, but still, their lips grow cracked, their throat dry, and they're craving something to drink. Just looking for even the slightest bit of relief. And so the hospital, you've seen these, provides these small little sponge swab-like things that, that seem to hold only a drop or two but even that drop or two rubbed across the lips can make a difference. I think, once again, in his thirst, we see the very real humanity of Christ. 
lips cracked, mouth of cotton, tongue clinging to whatever it touches, throat so dry he could barely swallow, internal organs shutting down for lack of water. Why doesn't he do something about it? Is he not the one for whom and through whom all things were created? Did he not make the waters of the earth and separate them from dry land? Did he not part the Red Sea when delivering his people and and wall up the Jordan River as they crossed into the promised land? Did he not calm the rainstorm when with his disciples on the Galilean Sea? Did he not turn water into wine? Couldn't he have done the same even now, only in reverse? Couldn't he have taken that sour wine and boom, had it be just refreshing bowls of water? I mean, with just a thought, was he not able to bring water pouring, cascading from the heavens? Of course he was. And so why didn't he? Why would Jesus endure something as common as thirst? You know, on some level, it's, it's almost easier to comprehend how he endured our sins. That's, that's, that's spiritual. That's deep. That's divine. But to thirst? It's just so human and therein lies the point you see Jesus was not a deified man or a humanized God though he is God he was a human being like us who experienced real human need even the need for the simplest things like water. He didn't have to thirst, but he chose to. Even, remember, even when he was offered wine mixed with myrrh and gall at the very beginning of his crucifixion, he refused because myrrh and gall were anesthetics intended to numb the senses and theoretically ease the pain, but Jesus refused, opting instead to feel our deepest need and endure the full sting of death. And it's in this fact, in addition to his bodily thirst, where we see something deeper going on. Spiritual implications that refer back to Christ's previous statement of forsakenness. Remember that just before Jesus, uh, just before the statement of thirst, Jesus had suffered the full penalty of sin by drinking to the dregs the metaphorical cup of sin's curse. You recall that when he was in Gethsemane, just one night prior, he asked the Father for reprieve. He knew what was facing him, what the cross meant for him, what he would be and become while on the cross. Abba, Father, he prayed, remove this cup from me. If it be possible, let this cup Pass from me. But if it cannot pass, unless I drink it, he resolved, your will be done, Father. 
And later that night, with that same resolve, when, when he was arrested and when Peter drew his sword in defense, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? This cup refers to God's just wrath towards sin. God is holy. And His holiness demands justice. Just as God is love, so also is He just. In fact, it would be uh, uh, unloving for God to not punish wrongdoing. I mean, even on the human level, imagine a society where wrong was just allowed total free reign and justice never prevailed. God won't have that. Thankfully, He cares too much. And so his wrath flows from his love because he cares about upholding what's right while holding accountable that which is wrong. And the rub, of course, is that we are the ones who are in the wrong. We've wronged God and others, and we're held accountable for our wrongs because all have sinned, all are guilty, and thus all bear responsibility. If this were a courtroom, We are the defendants, and the evidence is overwhelming. Apart from Christ, we are under the just sentence of death. But for reasons beyond our wildest comprehension, God has provided a a means of rescue and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Though, Though Jesus is the judge to whom we must give account, He, in a sense, has stepped down from His bench to suffer our sentence Himself. He who is rich in mercy has died in our place. He who is grace and truth drank the cup of judgment so that we wouldn't have to. Now, was this an easy cup to drink? No. Jesus knew it. Though he never sinned and and is without sin, he knew very well what drinking this cup entailed. He knew the toll it would take on him physically as he would be beaten, scourged, and crucified without cause. He knew the toll it would take on him emotionally as he would be mocked and jeered and publicly shamed. And he knew the toll it would take on him spiritually as he would be separated from his heavenly Father on the cross as the Father turned away from his beloved Son to leave him to drink this cup alone. No wonder, no wonder Jesus was asking the Father to remove it. That we can understand. That we can understand. But what's beyond our understanding is that he resolved to drink it anyway and people because Jesus drank this cup to the bitter end means that if you know him and trust him you will not drink even one drop It means that all your sins, whatever baggage you have in the past, whatever mess you've made today, whatever sin you have yet to commit, has already been justly 
punished by God in Christ so that you can be justly freed from punishment by Christ who joyfully brings you before the Father to enjoy life with God without shame or condemnation. What a Savior. The irony, however, is that the more Jesus drank this cup, the thirstier he became. Because drinking this cup meant being separated from God and his people, these words of thirst here in John 19 register the longings of Christ for restored Relationship. The sinless sin bearer had completed the task assigned to him and was yearning for his heavenly Father and for our reconciliation with the Father. For the joy that was set before him. Remember Hebrews 12? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. cross. And so in addition to his bodily thirst, he thirsted for communion with God, both his and ours. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder why the human body is designed to thirst? Why we hunger and thirst at all? Certainly, God God could have created the body to be self-sustaining, neither to thirst nor hunger. Certainly could have done that. The body is an amazing creation, obviously, and amazingly, God created it to need. Now, why is that? Could it be because the needs of the body point to and signify the needs of the soul? As the body thirsts for water, so our souls thirst for refreshment of another kind. And so as we move from Christ's thirst, I want us to consider our own. And one of my professors at Southern Seminary, Dr. Donald Whitney, he once talked about three kinds of spiritual thirst. The thirst of the empty soul, the thirst of the dry soul, and the thirst of the satisfied soul. And I want to consider each of these three thirsts, and as we do, I want to ask you to consider which one describes you best. Just to yourself, privately, honestly, as we go through these three thirsts, I'm asking you to consider which one describes you best. The thirst of the empty soul refers to the person who does not know God. Though God has placed eternity in our hearts, having created us for relationship with Him, the person, this person without God, tries desperately to satisfy the inner longings of their soul with worldly pursuits and pleasures. And at first glance, at first glance, the person may appear quite happy on the outside. 
quite happy in their chase after money or power or influence or relationships or substances or sexual encounters or entertainment or hobbies or possessions or achievements or this perpetual search for significance. But it's all in vain. It's all in vain and they know it. They know it. They know that however it may appear to others, the thirst within remains. They know it. Which is one reason why they keep trying to fill it, to satisfy it, to quench it. The thirst within remains because water drawn from worldly wells cannot slake the thirsty soul. Whatever relief it provides physically does not soak the soul and thus never truly satisfies. Now granted, they may not identify their thirst as being from God, but a God-shaped hole remains nonetheless. You know it as, as Augustine uh, so famously asserted, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Now, unlike the empty soul, the thirst of the dry soul describes the person in a saving relationship with God, but who is experiencing an arid season spiritually. The difference between the empty soul and the dry soul is that one has never experienced rivers of living water, while the other has and knows what he's missing. And so, how can a Christian who has the Holy Spirit within them experience bouts of dryness? Typically in just one of two ways. I think the most common is by drinking too much from the wells of the world and too little from the fountain of God. The clearest example of this is how we tend, we tend to seek input more from the world than from God. We tend to seek input, we pursue input, advice, counsel, entertainment, we pursue input more from the world than we do from God. Many of us are plugged into social media and various news outlets more than the Word of God. God once said through the prophet Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils. So he says my people, he's talking about those in relationship. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves 
broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying that our grave mistake is turning from him who is the fountain of living waters to instead just try to lap the water that spills from broken and unsatisfying containers. Without answering publicly, might that describe you this morning? A second cause of spiritual dryness could be that God, in order to stimulate your thirst, temporarily withholds a conscious sense of His presence. Now, He is with us always, of course, never, promise never to leave or forsake us, but like the sun that sometimes passes behind the cloud, which temporarily dims its rays and shades its heat, there are times in the Christian life when we feel like God isn't as close as he once was. He's never left us, just like the sun never moves. But our experience of him may wane as we navigate the circumstances of life. The psalmists are, or the psalms are full of seasons like this. You know Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. O God. Or Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or maybe you've prayed something similar to David's cry in Psalm 143. I stretch out my hands to you, O God. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. You know, every Christian, every Christian endures seasons like this. The key, the key is to respond as the psalmist do. By recognizing your dryness and acknowledging to God your thirst for God. God answers those prayers. God delights when you express your yearnings for him because it shows just how much he means to you. And because you mean so much to him, he delights to satisfy the longings of your soul with himself. Which brings us thirdly to the thirst of the satisfied soul. This is the person who has had her thirst quenched in Christ and wants even more of Christ. The person who has tasted that the Lord is good and wants to keep feasting at the table. I don't want to leave this table. Oh, the Lord is so good. Just I want to stay here and keep feasting. You know, the Apostle Paul personifies the thirst of the satisfied soul when he declared in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him. 
And what's beautiful about this declaration is that Paul clearly already knew the Lord. In the preceding verses, he testified that so sweet was his relationship with Jesus that he counted as loss all the worldly achievements and accolades of his life before Jesus. So sweet was his relationship with Jesus. He testified in the verses that follow that he was pressing on to even to know even more of Jesus, making Jesus his own, he says, because Jesus has made me his own. You see, Paul was deeply satisfied in the Lord. He was deeply satisfied in the Lord, but knew there were depths of satisfaction yet to be discovered. I want to quote my professor, Don Whitney. Knowing Christ well, is so spiritually thirst-quenching because no person, possession, or experience can produce the spiritual pleasure we can find in Him. Communion with Christ is incomparably satisfying because there is no disappointment in what you find in Him. Moreover, the spiritual gratification you find in Him is never-ending. And on top of these, the Lord in whom the satisfaction is found is an infinite universe of satisfaction in which one may immerse himself to explore and enjoy without limitation. So there is no lack of satisfaction in knowing Christ. But neither has God designed us so that just one experience with Christ satisfies all future desires for him. So which of these describe you best this morning? Is yours the thirst of an empty soul? Why drink from the wells of this world when your soul has been set apart for God alone? Receive the gift of living water, which is new life in Christ by receiving Christ as your own. He thirsted on the cross with you in mind by drinking the cup of judgment in your place that you could be satisfied in God. Is yours the thirst of a dry soul? If so, admit it. And ask yourself if your dryness owes to choices you have made to drink from broken cisterns instead of spirit-soaked springs of life. Like the empty soul, you may need to turn from worldly wells to drink from refreshing fountains. Drink truth from God's word Drink purpose from his mission in this world. Drink deeply in his presence as he pours himself into your life. Surround yourself with others who likewise thirst for God so that you can be quenched in Christ together. 
And if you're enduring a spiritually arid season because God simply wants to stimulate your thirst, just cry out to Him and wait patiently for fresh rain to fall upon the deserts of your heart. Is yours the thirst of the satisfied soul? Praise God for His abundant supply for no matter how much you drink or how often you come. The flow from His divine river is more than enough. And so be like Paul and press on to know Jesus and to know more of Jesus. Forgetting what lies behind, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus thirsted on the cross, our many thirsts can be satiated and satisfied in Him. Amen. God, please, will you please minister to each of these people and each of these types of people. Perhaps there are some among us this morning or who have the thirst of an empty soul and they have tried so long and so hard to quench their thirst in things that cannot satisfy. Will you, O God, draw them to yourself even today and bring them the refreshment they have been longing for? Perhaps there are some among us this morning who are who are dry in soul. Maybe, maybe owing to this, just this reality that we do tend to drink from broken cisterns. And I pray that if that's the case, that you will rightly and lovingly convict us of this, that we may come again to the fountain of, to the fountains of God. And then for those who may be here this morning and they epitomize the thirst of the satisfied soul, thank you. Oh God, thank you that no matter how much we drink, there is more available. That with you, you are abundant and lavish and generous in your supply. And you love to provide for your children. So... Will you please provide in great and mighty ways and make us to find our joy in you. We ask this through Christ and for his name's sake. Amen.